We shall turn now to the Word of God, to the chapter read in Revelation chapter 17. And you might wonder why we have jumped uh, from chapter 14 into chapter 17. But if you recall last Lord's Day, we did for a little consider or at least make reference to what we have in verse or chapter 14 of the fall of the great city of Babylon. Verse 8 of Revelation 14, there followed another angel saying, Babylon is fallen, is fallen, that great city, because she made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. Now you see immediately in the context that this great city here identified as Babylon has a connection with the events in chapter 13. And in reality, although we shall see more of it, Babylon is the capital city of Satan or the dragon's realm. And here we are, uh, we have this announcement from this angel, Babylon is fallen, is fallen. The great city is fallen, it is cast down. Again, over in chapter 18, you can see how important this Great intimation is, chapter 18, we read verse 1, After these things I saw another angel come down from heaven, having great power, and the earth was lightened with his glory. And he cried mightily with a strong voice, saying, Babylon the great is fallen, is fallen, and become has become the habitation of devils and the hold of every foul spirit and the cage of every unclean and hateful bird. So such is the importance of this great event that we have these two intimations of Babylon's fall. Now, that is connected with what we've been stressing. Satan, the great red dragon, Satan's attempt to destroy the church of Christ, the beast uh, rising out of the sea and the beast rising out of the earth, were giving worship to the beast, the first beast, and worship uh, to the uh, dragon. Now, the revelation, and this is where I believe many go astray. We've emphasized it is a pastoral book, it is prophetic, and it is practical. But there are other elements that we must keep in mind. It is not a history of nations. It is not a history of the world as such. It is not a political history. 
It is the history of the great Redeemer and his church. It is a summarized history of the glorious Redeemer and the history of his people to whom he becomes King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And we see his defeating of the powers of darkness. Now you go back right to the beginning where we begun in the first chapter. And let's remind ourselves of how we ought to approach this book. Revelation chapter 1 and verse 3 we read, Blessed is he that readeth, and they that hear the words of this prophecy, and keep these those things which are written therein, for the time is at hand. Now you would imagine that that is automatically an incentive to read this book to pay attention to its contents. And in the light of that, one wonders why the book of the Revelation is statistically one of the most neglected books in the whole of the canon of Scripture ever preached from. I've mentioned that before. Statistically, it is a very neglected book. Very seldom it seems preached from uh, throughout the world, except in these prophetic circles where uh, they concentrate on prophecy, which is rather sad. Now, you might ask, well, why would that be? And some say, well, it's a mysterious kind of a book. It isn't easy to understand. Well, you just imagine the devil encouraging the church and encouraging the people of God to read about his defeat. Is he going to pat on the back those who preach from this book, those who endeavor to expound it? Is he going to say, well done, My friend, I like to hear all about my defeat. I like to hear about the exaltation of the glorious Redeemer, the Christ of God. Is that what he's going to be doing? He will not want. He will not want the people of God to bother with the contents. He won't want to be advertising his defeat. He will not be wanting to see or the people of God to see the glorious Redeemer exalted. So it's little wonder then that this book is so neglected. But when we come here to chapter 17, what do we have? We have the identity and an explanation regarding the great city that has fallen. And that's why we've jumped over to chapter 17 for the present moment. We are told that John sees this city 
and it is identified as Mystery Babylon. Mystery Babylon, not historical Babylon, and not even spiritual Babylon, but Mystery Babylon. And even though John would have been able to identify Babylon as the mighty city in history, and he might have been able to turn back to Isaiah or to Jeremiah, and he would read there the very words that are recorded in chapter 14 of Revelation, Babylon is fallen, is fallen. You have that intimated back in the prophecy of Isaiah uh, there, uh, long before it actually happened, in fact, in the chapter 21. Uh, there is this intimation, Isaiah 21, verse 9, Behold, here cometh a chariot of men with a couple of horsemen. And he answered and said, Babylon is fallen, is fallen. And all the graven images of her gods he hath broken unto the ground. Now you can go back uh, in the same prophecy of Isaiah to chapter 13. And you see over 200 years before ever ancient Babylon fell at all. The prophet Isaiah was able to write about That's why today the liberals, uh, they will uh, tell us that there are more than one authors for the book of Isaiah because they claim an author could not have possibly known ahead of time about the fall of Babylon. They would have to write after it had taken place. But God gave Isaiah the insight, like he did for Daniel, what he did for Ezekiel, Jeremiah, and in chapter 13, you can see how accurate, how detailed the prophecy of the fall of ancient Babylon really is. Chapter 13 of Isaiah, verse 17. Behold, I will stir up the meats against them. Who was it that smote Belshazzar? Who was it that Daniel tells us uh, destroyed the kingdom of Babylon and took it over the Medes and the Persians? And Babylon became a tributary to the great medial Persian empire. God says... I will stir up the Medes. Now, who could have imagined such a thing? Verse 19 here of chapter 13. And Babylon, the glory of kingdoms, the beauty of the Chaldees' excellency, shall be as when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. It shall never be inhabited, neither shall it be dwelt in from generation a generation and so on. So here, over 200 years before it even happens, God says it's going to happen. 
And he doesn't just say how it's, uh, it's going to happen. He tells us how it's going to happen. He's going to raise up the Medes and the Persians to bring it about. You go to Daniel uh, chapter 5 and you see that that is exactly what happens. But again, in Isaiah chapter 44, what is the prophet Isaiah right? Verse uh, 28 of uh, Isaiah 44, that saith, this is God, that saith of Cyrus, he is my shepherd and shall perform all my pleasure, even saying to Jerusalem, thou shalt be built, and to the temple thy foundation shall be led. And here, uh, over a, a, around 150 years before ever Cyrus is even born, God, through the prophet, is saying what's going to happen. He's able to identify the very names of these kings who didn't even know him. Chapter 45 of Isaiah, verse 1, Thus saith the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have holden to subdue nations uh, before him. I will loose the loins of kings and so on. Verse 2, I will go before thee, make the crooked places straight, and so on. And God is speaking about a man who didn't even know him, a heathen, a pagan. Now, John knew all about this. He would have been familiar with this history. And when John hears the repetition of this intimation that had happened hundreds of years before, he must have been wondering, well, what's happening now? And then, you see, he discovers this Babylon is different. This is a mysterious Babylon. So mysterious that he doesn't really know what it means. So much so that we're told in verse 6 of Revelation 17, when I saw her, I wondered with great admiration. I marveled, I wondered, what does this all mean? Verse 7, the angel said unto me, Wherefore didst thou marvel? I will tell thee the mystery of the woman and of the beast that carrieth her which hath the seven heads and ten horns, the beast that thou sawest, and so on. So the first part of the uh, chapter 17, you have there a description of Babylon. Then uh, the latter part, from verse 8 to 18, you have an explanation of what has been identified. So we're not left wondering about this mystery. It's still a mystery. It's explained to us. Now then, going back to this city called Babylon, there are a number of things that we should keep in mind 
This is a city, and it's also a woman. We're told that uh, the woman sits. She has three different seats, as you will see. This woman identified as Mystery Babylon. First of all, in verse 1 of chapter 17, the angel says, Come hither, I will show unto thee the judgment of the great whore. I will show you the judgment that we previously looked at. Babylon is fallen, is fallen. I'm going to show you something more about it. The great whore that sitteth upon many waters. That's the first thing. She sitteth upon many waters. Go down then uh, to the uh, latter part of the uh, chapter, verse 15. He saith unto me, The waters which thou sowest, where the whore sitteth, are peoples and multitudes and nations and tongues. So that's the first thing. She sits upon people. She sits upon nations. She sits upon multitudes of nations and tongues. She is seated upon many waters, and these waters represent people. So she is sitting, and she is enthroned, as it were, over these many peoples. Now the second place where she sits should be obvious. We read in verse 4, The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet color and decked with gold and precious stones and pearls, having a golden cup in her hand full of abominations and her fornic- of her for- filthiness of her fornication. Now then you have her name identified in the fifth verse. But what's the connection between her and the uh, beast? Verse 3, he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness, and I saw a woman sit upon a scarlet-colored beast full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. So the second place that she sits is on this great beast. She uh, sits upon a scarlet-colored beast, full of names of blasphemy. Then the third place that is identified where she sits, you go over Uh, to uh, the uh, uh, verse 10 of this chapter, verse 9, I should say, Here is the mind which hath wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sitteth. Are seven mountains. Now we shall try when we come to it, to identify the mountains, it's very interesting that so many who speak prophetically, so many premillennialists, 
they will say that this is the city of Rome because Rome is built on seven hills. But it says seven mountains. And those mountains would have been understood by John. He would have understood the significance of the seven mountains. But meantime, this is where this woman sits. She sits on many peoples. She sits on this scarlet-colored beast. And she sits on seven mountains or seven powers, worldly, political powers, as we shall see. But there is a matter that needs to be identified. Here, where does John see this? And it's something that is very easily overlooked. What does the angel tell John he's going to do? I will show unto thee the judgment of the great whore that sitteth upon many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed fornication, and the inhabitants of the earth have been made drunk with the wine of her fornication. So this is what the angel's going to show John. So what happens now, verse 3, So he carried me, to show me this, he carried me away in the spirit, where to? Into the wilderness. Now that's significant. He carried me, to show me this, he carried me into the wilderness. Why would he carry John into the wilderness in this vision? For very good reason. And it's one of the things that many of the scholars and commentators, because of the ecumenical spirit of our age, they don't want to identify popery or Rome, and they don't want to say anything critical of the papacy and the system So therefore, they never want to talk about any apostasy from the truth. They just overlook that. And most will just simply make a reference to the ungodly world and the church. The world against the church, the church suffering in the world. Let's go back. It's interesting Uh, Let's go back just presently to chapter 12. What do we find in the vision that John has there? There appeared, verse 1 of chapter 12, a great wonder in heaven. A woman, a woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet and upon her head a crown of twelve stars. Now here is another woman. And that's one of the things we have to keep in mind. There's the Christ and the Antichrist. There is the church and the anti-church. There is one woman 
And there is another woman. And the first woman is identified in glorious array. And later on, you go over to chapter 21. John is called to come hither, verse 9. Come hither. I will show thee the bride, the lamb's wife. That's the church. I will show thee the bride, the lamb's wife. And then you have the beast and his whore. You have the Christ, the Redeemer, the Lamb, and his wife. And you have the beast and his whore. Now these have to be noted carefully. There's going back to chapter 12. We've looked at it, but just to refresh our minds. What is the dragon waiting for? The birth of the man-child born of this woman that he might devour it. What happens? Verse 5 of chapter 12. She brought forth a man-child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron, and her child was caught up unto God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness. You see that? The woman, the church, fled into the wilderness. The woman that brought forth the man-child flees into the wilderness. Now, how does she get there? Well, we go down to verse 14 of chapter 12. To the woman were given two wings of a great eagle, that she might fly into the wilderness, into the place where she is nourished, and so on. Now you see the two women, the first rides upon the wings of an eagle, the second rides upon the scarlet-colored beast. Now the first woman flees into the wilderness. But where does John go to see the second woman? Does he go to somewhere different? We are told, as we've noted, verse 3 of chapter 17, so he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness. Well, who was who fled into the wilderness the woman that brought forth the man-child. What does now John see in the wilderness? He sees a different woman altogether. He sees the harlot woman. He sees the unfaithful woman. He sees the immoral woman. He doesn't see the pure, holy bride, the wife of the Lamb, but now he sees a woman, and she is the very opposite. Now, both these women are identified as mothers. Both of them. The first woman in chapter 12 brings forth 
a man-child. She's the mother of the man-child, the glorious Redeemer. This second woman in chapter 17 is the mother of harlots and abominations of the earth. So they are both identified as in a relationship, the lamb and his wife, the beast and his whore. Both these women are mothers. One brings forth the man-child, the other brings forth uh, harlots and the abominations of the earth. Now, why would John be carried into the wilderness to see this sight? Because something has gone wrong in the wilderness. The church has apostatized. The church has been corrupted, so much so that uh, when you go over to chapter 18, and again, as we've noted, verse 2, the intimation Babylon is fallen is fallen. What do we read in verse 4 of chapter 18? John says, I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, that ye be not partakers of her sins, that ye receive not of her plagues. Why is such an intimation made? Because here in Babylon, mystery Babylon, are found his people. Because, you see, There has been a great apostatizing, a great forsaking of the truth, the beast out of the sea and the beast out of the earth in cooperation with the dragon, the serpent, the devil. They have seduced the church and the woman is now unfaithful to depicted as a harlot bringing forth, uh, as we're told, other harlots. Out of this, God now has to call his people, come out of her, come out of her, that ye be not partaker of her plagues. Now, you may well ask then, well, how would they be in the wilderness as the embodiment of the church there in the wilderness? Are they going to be called to come out of the wilderness? Are they going to be called out of the bride of Christ? Of course not. But they are called out of this abominable system this city of Babylon because it is uh, the apostate church that has forsaken Christ that has turned from the truth. Now, you will see that here in this chapter 17, the woman is described in detail. 
He carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness. Now John hasn't forgotten what has been revealed to him in chapter 12. Little wonder then he's mystified. Little wonder (coughs) the angel has to say, I will tell thee the mystery of the woman. Because John would be thinking, well, I'm carried into the wilderness. Surely now I will see the woman that brought forth the man-child. I will see that glorious sight, the bride of the Lamb. Instead, he sees this woman arrayed in completely different apparel. And he's probably trying to figure out Well, what has gone wrong here? Why this great change? What has happened? So the angel says, John, I will explain to you what has happened. And then instead of beginning with the woman, he begins to uh, describe and explain about the beast. But the thing is, before we get there, there is this intimate relationship between this woman and the beast. I saw verse 3, a woman sit upon a scarlet-colored beast full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. And the woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet color and decked with gold and precious stones and pearls having a golden cup in her hand full of abominations and filthiness of her fornication. Now the world does not commit fornication with the world. The church commits fornication with the world. And here is what's mystifying John. What's going on here? And this woman has all the appearance of living in luxury, being very popular, being loved everywhere. She is gifted with every conceivable gift because she's sitting upon many peoples. Now she isn't, as it were, sitting half in one seat and half in another, as it were, if she's sitting at the same time upon many peoples and nations and tongues, and at the same time she's seated on this scarlet-colored beast, and at the same time she's seated on seven mountains. It means that she has a lot of intimate relationship with the beast, with the peoples and the nations, and with these mountains, which we understand their identity from uh, the book of Daniel. We might just go back to Daniel just now. There we have, and it's one of the things we should Uh, Remember, there is a connection, I believe, between Daniel and the book of the 
revelation. Going back to uh, Daniel, uh, you have in chapter uh, 7, you have four beasts uh, mentioned, four kingdoms likened unto four beasts. And uh, Daniel, of course, is just as mystified at the visions that he has as John is. But look at what troubles Daniel. He is given the vision of four great kingdoms. And then verse 23 of Daniel 7, we read these words. The fourth beast, the fourth beast shall be the fourth kingdom upon the earth. Now, if you're a premillennialist, then what you're going to believe is this. This is the final kingdom upon the earth. And after that, Jesus returns in the clouds. That's it. That's not what it says. That's not what it teaches. The fourth beast... That is diverse, you look earlier, is diverse from all the other, from the previous three kingdoms. That kingdom is the fourth kingdom. Doesn't say the final kingdom, but it says the fourth kingdom. The fourth kingdom upon earth shall be diverse from all kingdoms and shall devour the whole earth and shall tread it down and break it in pieces, and so on. Now you go back uh, in Daniel to chapter uh, 2, and the vision that was given to the king that was interpreted by Daniel. Uh, You have four kingdoms in the earth. You have them identified, described somewhat differently. But Daniel sees four kingdoms. Now the remarkable thing about it is this, at the time of the fourth kingdom, what does God do? He sets up at the time of the fourth kingdom, he sets up an everlasting kingdom. You read uh, uh, from chapter 7, Verse 13, I saw in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man came with the clouds of heaven and came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. This is a heavenly scene, not an earthly scene. And there was given him dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people, nations, and languages should serve him, and his dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. Now, when does this happen? At the time of the fourth kingdom that is diverse from all the others previously. Everyone will agree the fourth kingdom was the Roman Empire. 
You follow it through scripture, it's plain to be seen. It's the great Roman Empire. When did John the Baptist start preaching about the kingdom that was coming? During the Roman Empire. When did Jesus say, and to whom did he say it, my kingdom is not of this world? He said it to the representative, the legal representative of the Roman Empire. He is going from village to village, from city to city. What's Jesus doing? Preaching the kingdom. So he's setting up his kingdom. And then what does he say to his apostles? All power is given unto me. And all they have to do is read Daniel. They understand perfectly what it all means. All power, that's what Daniel saw centuries ago, that he would set up his kingdom and that he would have dominion over all the people's of the earth, and he would send out his apostles, go into all the world. He didn't say, go to the boundaries of my little kingdom, but make sure you don't go wandering into anyone else's kingdom. He is saying, it all belongs to me. I have dominion over it all. Therefore, Go with the gospel and preach to every creature because all power has been given unto me just as Daniel said. Now what do we read here in chapter 17? When the angel begins to explain the scene the relationship between the dragon and this woman, between her and the nations and the peoples. Remember where she's sitting. Going back uh, to the verse 15 of chapter 17, the waters which thou sawest, where the woman sitteth, are peoples and multitudes and nations and tongues. Why is she sitting there? Because these nations and these tongues and these people belong to the glorious Christ. And she is a parody of his bride. But going back up the chapter, What does the angel say? Verse 8. The beast that thou sawest was and is not and shall ascend out of the bottomless pit and go into perdition. Now have we ever met with this beast or any creature coming out of the abyss or out of the bottomless pit before? 
We have. But here he is ascending out of the bottomless pit. And they that dwell on the earth shall wonder whose names were not written in the book of life and so on. Verse 10, keeping in mind what we read, verse 8, the beast that thou sawest was and is not and shall ascend out of the bottomless pit. He was. Now he doesn't appear to exist. He is not. But then he shall ascend out of the bottomless pit. What do we read of the glorious Redeemer? Yes, he came from heaven. He returned to heaven. And he will return again, finally, to take his church to be with himself. Here is this beast in opposition to the glorious Redeemer. And he has ascended out of the bottomless pit. But then he is not. Just in the same way, Christ said to his disciples, I am going away to leave you, but I'm still with you. So that I was, I am not, yet I am. I am on high, but I'm still with you. You cannot see me whether I go, but I'm still presently with you. Christ ascended on high and he will return at the final day for his church. Here is the parody again. You see this in the powers of darkness imitating, parodying the works, the Antichrist, similarly following, as it were, the style, the pattern of the true Christ. He ascends into the pit, the abyss. Then he comes out. And people are wondering. We thought he was dead. He's alive. Then, uh, keeping that in mind, we go down. Here is the mind, verse 9. Which hath wisdom... The seven heads are seven mountains. Now, that's not difficult to figure out, is it? The seven heads are the seven mountains. What are the seven heads? Well, the beast, verse 3, the scarlet-colored beast upon whom the woman rides has seven heads and ten horns. Seven heads are seven mountains. Now, what were the mountains? Well, you go back uh, to the book of Daniel, and the mountains were the kingdoms. So these 
seven mountains represent seven kingdoms. Now, where did Daniel end? He ended with the fourth one. Yet here we're told of seven mountains. Not seven hills, seven mountains. And what's peculiar about them, there are seven kings. Seven mountains, seven kings. Daniel saw four kings, four kingdoms. It is mentioned the kingdoms are actually, go back to chapter 2, chapter 7 of Daniel. You'll see there that whenever we have a reference to Babylon or Media Persia, it's just a reference, the king. The king represented the kingdom. He was the mountain. The kingdom was the mountain. There are seven mountains. And this woman sits on the seven mountains. So she is a mysterious customer, to be truthful. She has a very ancient history. She sits on the seven mountains, dominating the kingdoms of the earth. Now look at what we read. Verse 10, there are seven kings. And you know, you will find again and again and again men trying to figure out who exactly are these seven kings. Were they the Caesars? But then there were more than seven Caesars. So then they tried to figure out, well, how many had existed up until John's time? Then how many existed after John's time? And they end up utterly lost and confused because they don't know which Caesar to begin with or which to end with to be sure they've got the right seven. But these are seven kings, seven kingdoms, upon which the woman sitteth. And where does she sit? She sits upon peoples and multitudes and nations and tongues. Now what does the angel tell John? There are seven kings. And then he says there are actually eight kings. There are seven kings Five are fallen, and one is, and the other is not yet come. And when he cometh, he must continue a short space. And the beast that was and is not, even he is the eighth. Now, what does seven mean, or or rather, what does four mean? We've been looking at the symbolic significance of the numbers. We have the four points of the compass. Four is the symbolic number of the world, the world powers, and so on. What does it mean then? You double that. 
And in our day and age, in our generation, the children, the young people are growing up today hearing about something their grandfathers didn't hear about. The superpowers. Man has become so mighty, so intelligent, he has been able to establish the superpower. Not just power anymore. The superpower. It goes beyond the bounds of ordinary political power. Because there are eight, although there are seven. Seven, of course, is the number of completion, the number of roundness and completion. And so here there are seven kings. This is the completion of the realm and the boundaries of human power, the power of men, the beast's power, the dragon's power, uh, the power that he exercises through the instruments of men. Now, the beast that comes out of the abyss or out of the, uh, ascends out of the bottomless pit, we are told he is of the seven. So he's of the same spirit, of the same essence. He belongs to them. He is part of them. And yet he is more than that. He goes beyond that. He is more power than that. He completes, as it were, the power that can possibly be exercised in the whole earth among men. This is the beast that this woman rides upon. And because she does so, she becomes exceedingly rich. She is arrayed in purple and scarlet and uh, so on. And when you hear the laments again and again, you hear the laments, alas, alas, go to chapter 18, verse 16, or verse 10 to begin with. Alas, alas, that great city, Babylon, that mighty city. Alas, alas, Babylon is fallen. Verse 16, alas, alas, that great city that was clothed in fine linen and purple and scarlet and so on is fallen. Verse 18, what city is like unto this great city. Verse 19, alas, alas, the great city, and uh, so on. The great lament, the great city of Babylon is fallen. But there are matters that we will have to go into in more detail in the future, but just mentioning now This woman represents the apostate church. Not the true church, but that which is apostatized from the true church. So much so that God has to call, come out of her, my people, lest you be partaker 
of her plagues because her plagues, her judgment (coughs) is undoubtedly coming, it's approaching. Now, we're living in days when it is extremely difficult. Politicians, academics, are not able to discern generally between what is the true church and what is the false church. If you get a journalist or a politician and they want to find out what's the church think about this? What does the church have to say in this matter? Where do they go? They go to some liberal bishop or some one who's turned away from the biblical truths and practices and he gives what is supposed to be the mind and the thinking of the church. And it is not the mind or the thinking of God in the scriptures. And how often the people of God are lamenting. And you hear an interview with some cardinal or some bishop or whatever, and they're saying, well, the church states this, and the church says that, and this is the mind of the church. And the poor child of God is wishing if only we had a voice, if only we could say what we believe God has to say in the matter. Now the time will come as we shall see. When those upon whom the whore sits actually turn on her and devour her and destroy her, But when do they destroy her? After God has called his own people out of her. And it will be the apostate church that will finally be hated by the world. God's people, the Lamb, will be on Mount Zion and all his people will be with him. But the harlot woman will sink with the beast that she rides upon because of God's judgment. And I believe that it is the duty of those who believe the word of God and its teaching so contrary to so much of the teaching throughout Christendom today. It is our duty to call on fellow believers to come out of the apostate systems and churches that they are in because God calls them out. The day is coming when God is going to sink the harlot woman the mother of harlots and the abominations of the earth, sink her with the beast that she rides upon. 
Because the people are going to turn to hate that system. They're going to hate the unreality. Just as much as Jesus, during his earthly ministry, he said, Woe unto you, scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites. And that's what God is going to say to the false church, the anti-church, the anti-bride of Christ. Woe unto you, scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites. Mystery, Babylon, a city, but a woman, an adulteress, a woman uh, supposedly representing the bride of Christ, but in league with the dragon, in league with the powers of darkness. You just have to look today how many meetings that Pope Francis has had in recent years since his pontificate began with all the leaders of the world's religions, the Hindus, the Muslims, evangelicals, charismatics. He's been inviting them all uh, to gatherings and they're all praying together. They all come and they pray to their God. And the Pope says, we're all brethren. We're all one big family. And you can be a Hindu You pray your way. You can be a Roman Catholic. You pray to the Virgin Mary and the saints your way. You use your rosary beads. You can be an evangelical and just go directly to God through Christ. That's all right. You can be a Muslim and you can believe that Christ was just a prophet, that he wasn't divine. That's all right. You just pray and we're all happy together. And you can see that we are fast approaching the fulfillment of the word of God that John was shown, the development of this scene, the woman riding upon the beast at the same time dominating the peoples of the earth and involved with the seven powers are the eight kings, the seven mountains in this world. This woman has risen from obscurity to great and powerful influence. But the scene is, she is going to go down to sink with the beast and the false prophet because of the close affiliation. And you and I, if we are reading our Bibles, we are bound to see something at least of what John saw. But if we read this book, if we seek to understand it, do you think the, you think the devil's going to say, I'm pleased you're reading Revelation? Is he going to say, I'm pleased you're trying to preach from Revelation? He didn't want anybody to know what's in Revelation. Because what's it doing? It's pointing to his defeat. He doesn't want us to be thinking about that. So that's why it's all the more important 
that we read the book, that we understand it, that we follow it through. But we shall leave it here. May the Lord bless his word. Let us pray. Most holy and eternal God, we rejoice that down through the ages thou hast made it known that thou art in control of all the affairs of the sons of men. Thou dost rule over kings and kingdoms. Thou dost rule over good and over evil. Thou art in complete control. And we rejoice that the saints of God shall have the victory in the end and the powers of darkness will be destroyed. And evil is then to be seeking more and more uh, to appreciate the glorious Redeemer, the one to whom all power has been given in heaven and in earth. Bless us, pardon us, receive us for the Redeemer's sake. Amen.